You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This one is being recorded on November 25th for the listening week that begins the 26th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. This week you'll be hearing uh, first some news from TheRoot.com, and then a little bit later in the program you'll be hearing an article that I was able to archive from October and now have a chance to read for you titled, Black Elders Saved This Couple's Mississippi Farm. Now they're harvesting ancestral techniques and tomatoes. That one comes from Scalawag magazine, and there will be other pieces as well. Let's get started with current events from theroot.com. Georgia Republicans file appeal to stop Saturday voting from happening. And this is an update written by Alexandra Jane and Marjani Rawls, and it was published Wednesday this week. Three Georgia Republican groups are claiming Judge Thomas A. Cox's interpretation of the law is incorrect. It's a win for Georgia Democrats this week as a Fulton County judge ruled on Friday that early voting in the state's runoff elections could, in fact, take place the Saturday after Thanksgiving. This comes after arguments made that such an action was barred under state law. Since the ruling was handed down, three Republican groups based in Georgia have filed an appeal to the state's highest court to stop Saturday voting from happening, as noted by CNN. The groups are asking the Georgia Supreme Court to issue an emergency stay of a lower court ruling that said Georgia law does allow voting this Saturday. The Warnock campaign and Democratic, pardon me, Democratic groups have until 9 a.m. Wednesday to file a response. A 2016 state law which prohibits early voting on the second Saturday before a runoff election, if that day falls one or two days after a federal holiday, was argued by Georgia Democrats to disenfranchise voters who cannot participate in early voting during weekday hours. This population, which is largely made up of students, low-income voters, and people of color, tends to vote Democratic. Republican committees are arguing in their appeal that only 10 counties, all of them Democratic-leading, plan to conduct early voting that day. They believe this would somehow be, quote, eviscerating the statutorily required uniformity among Georgia's counties. According to the New York Times, Judge Thomas A. Cox of the Superior Court of Fulton County issued a 10-page order which ruled that the law did not specifically apply to runoff elections and that Saturday voting should be considered an essential component of the election process. 
This is especially true considering the window for runoff elections in Georgia is not shorter under the major voting law that the Republicans passed last year. The runoff this year will be held on December 6th. Furthermore, Judge Cox ruled that without Saturday voting, Democratic groups and their constituents would, quote, suffer immediate and irreparable harm. The Republican appeal is claiming Judge Cox's interpretation of the law is wrong and the runoff election set for December 6th is clearly a continuation of the November 8th general election. While Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, a Republican, initially stated that Saturday voting would be possible during the runoff, lawyers in his office said that it would conflict with the upcoming holiday weekend. The office also noted that the Saturday after Thanksgiving would fall one day after the state holiday that once celebrated the birthday of the defamed Confederate General Robert E. Lee. On Tuesday, however, several Democratic groups, including Senator Raphael Warnock, sued to retain Saturday voting, stating the office had interpreted the law too narrowly and that stripping poll access in this way would disenfranchise voters that most often support the Democratic Party. During a news conference on Tuesday, Warnock doubled down in his support for the lawsuit, also persuading county election officials to expand their voting hours. As the celebratory news was released on Friday, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, the Democratic Party of Georgia, and Mr. Warnock's campaign called the judge's ruling a win for every Georgia voter, but especially for workers and students who will have a greater opportunity to make their voices heard in this election. They continued in their statement by saying, We look forward to counties announcing that they will provide Georgians the opportunity to cast their ballots on Saturday, November 26th. Next article written by Alexandra Jane, published on November 19th. Black action figure pioneer sees a shift on the horizon in the toy industry. Mattel plans to roll out a fully updated line of Eason's multicultural action figures in 2023. Ela Eason, the creator of the first black superhero figure, says she's excited to see Afrofuturistic toys roll out this season more than ever before. Sun Man, the black action figure she designed in the 80s has been growing in popularity over the last several years an industry shift she believes is in due pardon me it is due in large part to the black panther fandemonium for boys toys especially there's a lot of black animation gaming that's being developed drawn from comic books and sci-fi its characters looking like you and being futuristic and magical and mystical it's part of the genre right now, and I'm seeing a mass of it, not just a one-off, Eason told Rutgers University. Eason, who is also a professor of professional practice at Rutgers Business School in Newark, founded Olmec Toys in 1985. With this company, the entrepreneur developed an entire multicultural line of action figures. Eason says... 
that she was motivated to get to work after her three-year-old son told her he would never be able to become a superhero because he was black. Explained Eason, If you can see yourself as powerful, you can be powerful. If you have to limit your fantasy world, your imagination, that's frightening. Sun Man and crew quickly developed a loyal fan base while Eason took a grassroots approach to marketing and sales by distributing the figures at barber shops, hair salons, and post offices. The toys had hit the big time in the 90s when major retailers agreed to stock the collection, but sadly, Eason and her manufacturers couldn't keep up with the demand, and so eventually they were stripped from store shelves. But Sun Man would rise again. In 2021, Mattel partnered with Eason to recreate the popular toys as a part of its He-Man Master of the Universe collection. There was a serious desire to see these characters again, explained Eason. The line features four of the original characters from the Olmec collection called Rulers of the Sun. Also a part of Sun Man's cohort is Digitino, a Latinx computer wizard, and Space Sumo, an Asian with, who is a telekinetic ninja. There is also a villain among them, Pighead. Vintage fans will notice that the characters have updated looks like Sun Man's fresh fade haircut and new golden wings. The line will also feature six additional OG figures, including Boltman, an indigenous figure who will be introduced along with the rest of the collection by the end of 2023. Eason tells Rutgers that back in the 80s, America wasn't ready for what Olmec offered. She says that this was in part due to the fact that to the masses, black action figures posed a threat, unlike that of black Barbies or baby dolls. With dolls and girls, there is a nurturing concept. There's hair play and clothes play. It's about mothering, compassion, love, and beauty. It exists in another realm of play, says Eason. With boys and action figures, you're talking about power dominance. It's a different form of play that may seem frightening if the black guy wins. It was seen by the masses as a radical concept, she continued, but I didn't think it was radical. Luckily, times have changed, and Eason couldn't be happier. What was verboten is now celebrated and accepted as normal, she said. Next article written by Marjani Rawls says it was updated last Monday. Tulsa Race Massacre Victims Cemetery Search concludes with additional graves found. 32 additional caskets of alleged Black Wall Street victims were found at Tulsa's Oak Lawn Cemetery last Friday. Oklahoma officials have announced they have found 17 additional unmarked graves at an excavation site in the Oak Lawn Cemetery, according to CNN. This is a part of Tulsa's ongoing effort to find the unidentified victims of 1921's Tulsa Race Massacre. 
Beginning in 2018, the city of Tulsa started an extensive investigation into the massacre, which included searching for mass graves. In 1921, a violent white mob specifically targeted Tulsa's Greenwood District, nicknamed Black Wall Street. More than 1,000 homes were burned to the ground and looted. While it's estimated 300 people were killed, only 26 death certificates were issued for the black victims of the massacre, as noted by the Tulsa Historical Society and Museum. 21 of them were reportedly buried in Oak Lawn Cemetery. Last year, an excavation effort at the cemetery resulted in 19 exhumations. Some of those bodies were later reburied. The additional excavation, which occurred on October 26th, resulted in finding 16 burials exposed and one partially exposed, according to Oklahoma State archaeologist Carrie Stackelbeck. In a final effort at the site on Friday, November 18th, 32 additional caskets were discovered and eight sets of remains were exhumed, as noted by the Huffington Post. Two sets of the 66 remains found in the past two years have been confirmed to have gunshot wounds. However, none have been confirmed to be victims of the massacre as of yet. Right now, the hand excavations around the coffins are happening to determine candidates for exhumation and examination in a forensics lab. A forensics team is also on hand to take DNA samples. Stackelbeck has also stated a pastor, reverend, and other members of the clergy may also be present when the remains are transported. Stackelbeck said, We're trying to do every step of this process as respectfully as possible, and so we're also anticipating having members of the Public Oversight Committee who are going to help us with the process of transporting remains from the excavation area to the forensics lab. Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum feels strongly that the entire cemetery is a mass grave. While some investigators have said researchers should continue the search in a nearby park, Bynum states no decisions will be made until a report is seen next year. Bynum said, Is there a mass grave where there are people lined up in a row like we thought might be? That is not the case. Is Oaklawn Cemetery still a mass grave? Yes. Next article written by Kaylin Womack, still reading from theroot.com. This was published Wednesday the 23rd. Mother of Shankela Robinson says Black Twitter kept the case from going cold. Social media speculations on the alleged murder gathered the FBI's attention. Salamandra Robinson, mother of Shankela Robinson, has been demanding answers since the day she found out her daughter died. Shankela was found dead last month during a trip to Mexico with a group of friends. Though the investigation into her death began at a slow start, Salamandra said social media has been a driving force behind getting justice, according to NBC News. Initial reports of Robinson's death say she was found dead at a villa in Cabo San Lucas, Lucas pardon me, on October 29th. Authorities originally suspected no foul play in her death, and her friends claimed she died of alcohol poisoning. 
However, Robinson's mother claims an autopsy found she suffered a broken neck and fractured spinal cord. On top of that, alleged videos of Robinson being assaulted and various social media posts have brought Twitter users to believe her friends murdered her. Her father confirmed in an interview that one of the friends grabbed her by the neck and body-slammed her. It gets deeper. When her friends called for help, Dr. Carolina Beatriz Ornelas Gutierrez arrived and found Robinson alive. She wanted to take Robinson to the hospital, but her friends refused, according to WCNC Charlotte. Eventually, an ambulance was called, and for the next three hours, Gutierrez attempted 14 sessions of CPR, six electric shocks with a defibrillator, and five doses of adrenaline, all to no avail. One friend who was still in the U.S. during the incident went to Facebook, alleging the group stole $10,000 from Robinson before they fled back home after her death. Robinson's mother shared the post on her Instagram. She told NBC if it wasn't for social media, the authorities would have let the case go cold. I never thought she wouldn't get justice because we were going to try to go all the way. But I appreciate everything that everybody's done, however you've played a part in it, said Salamandra Robinson. The FBI in Charlotte has opened an investigation with Mexican authorities after the amplification of the videos showing the moments before Robinson's death. Local news efforts to reach the six friends for comment have not been successful. Still reading from current events, but switching sources now to the afro.com, or that's just afro.com, from their religion section, TCR Breaking News, Prominent virologist and AME itinerant elder, Dr. A. Ovetta Fuller, dies at age 67. This was posted November 21st, it says, by the Christian Recorder. Reverend Dr. Almira Ovetta Fuller was born on August 31st, 1955, in Mabane, North Carolina, Deborah Woods Fuller, her mother, was a teacher, and her father, Herbert R. Fuller, managed the family farm. Fuller grew up near Yanceyville, North Carolina. As a child, biology intrigued her at an early age. She was amazed at how her grandmother recovered quickly from being bitten by a water moccasin after receiving antivenin, which was an antidote for snake venom. Although her grandmother's snake bite contributed to her appreciation for biology, there were also two notable biology teachers, Miss Elam and Miss Mr. Majet, who inspired her as well. After graduating from high school, she earned an Aubrey Lee Brooks scholarship to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where she received a BA in biology in 1977. Fuller continued her education at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to complete her Ph.D. in microbiology and immunology in 1983. In 1983, Fuller attended the University of Chicago for postdoctoral fellowship. 
In 88, she became an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Michigan Medical School. In 1995, she was promoted to associate professor with tenure. She also served as a faculty associate for the Center for Global Health, STEM Initiative, and African Studies Center at the University of Michigan. She was currently the associate professor of microbiology and immunology at the medical school and faculty in the STEM Initiative of African Studies at the University of Michigan. Fuller's many awards include the Woman of the Year in Human Relations by the University of Michigan Task Force, her service with the Distinguished Service Medal in Microbiology, pardon me, the Distinguished Service Award in Microbiology and Ministry from the Missions Society AME, the Robert Smith Community Service Humanitarian Award, and her biography was highlighted in Distinguished African American Scientists of the 20th Century. In 2012, she received a Fulbright U.S. Scholar Program Award. In 2013, she began nine months of research in the Copper Belt region of Zambia, in which her work focused on bringing biomedical information into communities through local religious leaders. During a sabbatical in 2006, Dr. Fuller traveled to several African nations, including Botswana, South Africa, and Zambia, to help members of the clergy to better understand the science behind HIV and AIDS and how to help educate their congregations on the impact of AIDS in their communities. Dr. Fuller most recently served on the Vaccine and Biological Products Advisory Committee of the Food and Drug Administration, whose most recent work was the emergency release of the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Fuller was an ordained itinerant elder in the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the Michigan Annual Conference and served as an adjunct faculty member at Payne Theological Seminary. She also served for several years as a columnist for the Christian Recorder. Fuller died on November 18, 2022, after a brief non-COVID-related illness. Funeral arrangements are forthcoming. Please keep the family in prayer. Next, still from Afro.com, an editorial piece by Dr. John E. Warren, posted November 18th, Black People and Black Friday. First, let's remind everyone that Black Friday has nothing to do with black people. Black represents the color of money when profits are up, just as red represents the color of loss when profits are down. The irony is the degree of participation black people spend their dollars. Oh, pardon me. I think there's a period required there that's missing. The irony is the degree of participation. Black people spend their dollars on Black Friday with no benefit other than what appears to be personal bargains. Let's be reminded that black people spend over $3 trillion a year on just about everything. However, our spending is not focused, in spite of efforts from a number of our young people using the Internet to talk about economics and wealth building. Well, let's just start where we are. Do we really need to jump into Black Friday spending? Do we need the stuff many of us are buying? Could those dollars be used to help with our needs or to help the needs of somebody else? 
Did you know that over 99% of the advertising dollars for Black Friday do not go to black newspapers or black media outlets? Why these questions? Let us remember that Montgomery bus boycott, which lasted for more than 300 days, because Rosa Parks would not give up her seat on the bus and all black people were affected by the same problem, black people made a decision to walk and not ride the buses. Many were fired from their menial jobs, which were bread and life support to a people who already were living on less than enough. Those people created such an economic impact by focusing their collective efforts that they won. Question when will we remember and put to use the lessons of the past, since some among us are trying to turn back the clock on civil rights, voting rights, social security, and everything else that means life and death to so many of us. We, the collective, need to move toward creating our own real Black Fridays by how we spend dollars every day. Do we need that fast food stop? the junk foods, alcohol, and cigarettes. Those who smoke would give themselves a pay raise just by quitting. Are we watching the growing trend to reduce all corporate dollars being directed to nonprofits, which becomes a write-off rather than spending corporate marketing dollars with us as they do with other consumers? Now that we know that Black Lives Matter and that Black Votes Matter, let's really make Black Fridays matter by looking at and rethinking how we spend our trillions of dollars. Let us remember that there are three things that corporate America understands. One, lost profits. Two, bad publicity. And three, votes cast against their interest. By influencing the last two, we can move the needle once again on public policies like voting rights, health care, and who sits in the U.S. Congress and the U.S. Senate. Let us hear from you on this matter. That was the last sentence of the article, and at the bottom there's a note. The opinions on this page are those of the writers and not necessarily those of the Afro. Send letters to the Afro-American, 145 West Ostend Street, STE 600, Suite 600, Office Number 536, Baltimore, Maryland, 21230. Or you can email editor at afro.com. Moving now to that archived article from Scalawag. Black elders saved this couple's Mississippi farm. Now they're harvesting ancestral techniques and tomatoes. Teresa and Kevin Springs inherited an overgrown farm in Mississippi. As they reclaim the land, they're racing to reap farming lessons from community elders before it's too late. It says this was originally published August the 3rd, 2022, written by Erica Hensley and Teresa Irvin Springs. Until five years ago, Teresa Springs was always in heels and perfectly manicured. As a child growing up in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, she'd never even walked barefoot in the grass. Today, Teresa goes shoeless in rows of crops on her farm. 
grounding with the Mississippi earth as a part of her daily healing, connecting to the land at sundown before heading back with soil-covered hands and feet to her husband, Kevin, and their old farmhouse. Now five years into stewarding their farm, dubbed TKO Farming, an acronym for Teresa and Kevin's Oasis, they're still just as awestruck by what they've built by hand as self-described city folks who met in July 2013 while working on criminal justice reform in Miami, the couple never envisioned living on, much less operating, a farm. Now they can't imagine anything different than their lives on the 73 acres of flat, open fields surrounded by ponds and piney woods, peppered with many row crops. That's M-I-N-I, many row crops, their farmland is only accessible via dirt roads in McCool, Mississippi, a 118-person town about two hours northeast of Jackson. The farm had been in Kevin's family for four generations. It's a place he visited as a child, but he hadn't exactly picked up the skills to be a farmer. In June of 2016, as Kevin's mother's health failed, she transferred the property deed to him, as no other family members wanted anything to do with it. On a trip to the property soon after, Kevin and Teresa saw why. Everything on the grounds needed fixing. The grass was nearly four feet tall. There were two years' worth of leaves piled up, and the house was in disrepair. The couple looked around and saw overgrown trees and broken windows. That night, the bugs were so loud, Teresa called them terrifying. We were happier leaving than coming, said Kevin. Though she never said why, Kevin's mother still entrusted him with the deed despite no experience or interest in farming. For the first six months, the couple toiled over what to do with the property. They considered selling it, but the land and obligation to care for it kept tugging at them. They decided to make one more trip back, once the shock wore off, and something about the land, and more importantly, in them, shifted. Touring the tract with a forester who taught them about native flora and fauna, the Springs' witnesses, pardon me, witnessed what they couldn't see the first time. To prepare for life as farmers, they spent long hours on YouTube, read books and attended food safety and farming conferences. In addition to countless field days and workshops focused on sustainable farming practices, they planned to take on this unknown territory one 100-by-100-foot plot at a time. And I skipped over a picture included here, but realized I should read you that as well. Just after the sentence, the Springs has witnessed what they couldn't see the first time. There's a photo of a rain shower on onto the green fields and forest. And they've included some quotes from themselves. It started to drizzle and the sun began to shine through the trees while the clouds moved, said Teresa. The forest looked like a wonder, wonderland, pardon me. It seemed like minutes, but took hours, and before we knew it, half the day had passed. We came out with a deeper connection to the land. After that, we knew we'd never sell. 
Still, when the couple moved to McCool in January of 2017 and looked out over the abandoned farm, they had no idea where to start. So they looked to history, back to a time when this land was tended well. The farm was once one of the central Mississippi farms that were stewarded jointly by black families. Formed out of necessity to share resources and know-how, in the first half of the 20th century. Cooperatives have a long history for black farmers in Mississippi of helping black sharecroppers evolve into owning land and farms. In spite of systemic barriers, black co-ops began to prosper and proliferate along the Mississippi Delta. Fannie Lou Hamer's Freedom Farm Cooperative spearheaded them into the mainstream civil rights movement. Each family owned hundreds of acres. There was really no need to go outside of the community, maybe only a couple times a year to get anything because the whole community supported each other, said Teresa. Some families raised cows and hogs, others grew produce. A few craftsmen like farriers made the rounds, and the whole community thrived together. From stories and photos passed down, said Teresa, it was majestic. Within a week of moving to Mississippi, they connected with their local farm cooperative at the insistence of a local state extension agent, one of Mississippi State University's agriculture specialists who offer informal farming education in all 82 counties. In 1985, building off the progress of earlier co-ops, a group of black farmers formed the Winston County Self-Help Cooperative to help formalize local knowledge sharing and community support. In the midst of increasing black land loss and broken USDA promises to support small farmers, similar local co-ops popped up across the country. At his very first meeting in March 2017, Kevin uttered only a few words to this group, We don't know nothing, and we need your help. That first week... They had to clear space on the overgrown plot for new growth. Kevin raked up 80 piles of leaves, then began cleaning up the ditches with a walk-behind push mower, their first farm purchase, which drained the $200 they had to their name when they arrived in Mississippi. The co-op farmers, all community elders, also spent hours on the spring's property, bringing over tractors to till their first garden plot, helping install irrigation systems, and putting up fencing. Here's another insert photograph of the dirt with small growth beginning. And they say, Soon the labor began to pay off. The first time Teresa saw a tiny green string bean sprout from the seed that she had planted by hand ten days prior, she screamed, I thought she'd found a snake in the garden, said Kevin, who didn't initially understand the excitement, but when he bit into their first garden harvest, a plump, bright, red, brandywine heirloom tomato, he nearly cried. I've never tasted anything like it. Now they've got cows, goats, chickens, bees, and three ever-growing produce plots on their regenerative farm, which is both an ecological sustainability process, and a lifestyle that honors the land, said Teresa. 
completely self-sustaining, chickens feed off leftover veggies, and in turn, their eggshells go back into the soil as a source of calcium carbonate. They don't use any herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, or petroleum-based fertilizer. In addition to their crops and livestock, they've also cultivated a sense of peace. The couple feels a sense of calm wash over them every time they traverse their grounds, something they never knew they needed a decade ago as they navigated and eventually fled generational trauma in South Florida. The couple leaned on their community elders for farming advice, which soon morphed into emotional support, too. Both Kevin and Teresa arrived in Mississippi in need of deep healing from their lives before they found each other. I literally left Florida running for my life, said Teresa, who fled, in part, to distance herself from an abusive ex-relationship. I just knew that I did not want to become a statistic. The co-op elders believed in and supported the Springses because the couple kept showing up ready to learn. Without them, Kevin and Teresa aren't sure they would have made it. Today, the group's future is slightly uncertain, as most of its members are farmers predominantly in their 70s, making the Springses, who are in their 50s, the youngest farmers in the cooperative. Many of the elder farmers in the co-op have become ancestors since that first evening back in March 2017, when Kevin asked for their help. Today, many of their children and descendants have no interest in carrying on their family farms. As they have for decades, aging black farmers have carried on this legacy largely in isolation. The Springses realized the life-saving generational wisdom their elders imparted on them, like when to plant, how to cut hay, and the best way to fell trees, could be lost to posterity if someone doesn't harvest it. After decades of black land loss and theft, Mississippi, the blackest state in the nation, has a lot more to lose in the next few decades. Twelve percent of Mississippi farmers are black, marking the highest proportion of black farmers of any other state. Mississippi is also home to one of the highest concentrations of aging farmers. Put another way, black farmers in Mississippi are retiring and dying at higher rates than ever before. In 2012, 34% of the state's farmers were at least 65 years old. By 2017, across the nation, farmers were older than ever when the average age reached 58. In Mississippi, it's 60. Both in their late 50s, the Springses often feel like the toll, pardon me, often feel the toll of the long days of manual labor in the heavy Mississippi heat. Exhausted from the chronic back and shoulder pain that never seems to go away, and tackling bouts of throbbing feet and hands, their physical pains rival the frustration of getting started with rewarding yet toiling work so late in life. We often wish we were twenty years younger with the strength that comes along with it. We advise everyone this will be much easier on them if they start while they're still young, said Teresa. Every day we feel fortunate to be able to experience this lifestyle, but we feel the responsibility to keep it going for the next generation. 
On top of the risk of losing aging farmers, black farmers, too, have been stripped of their land and livelihood over the past century, from one million black farmers to less than 50,000 across the 20th century, comprising only 1% of U.S. producers. In Mississippi, black folks once dominated farming but have lost nearly 70% of their acreage now comprising less than 5,000 farms out of nearly 35,000 across the state. As the Springses inherited the land and farm, they also inherited ongoing ramifications of generations of racist tactics to keep black folks from owning land. The Natural Resource and Conservation Service, a USDA agency that awards farming grants for conservation projects, seemed like a helpful resource at first, but the Springses soon found uh, only roadblock after roadblock. They had as many excuses as there were months that passed, said Teresa. Two, as stewards of a small farm, they aren't eligible for many federal subsidies. For grant applications, despite different practices and margins, their crop yields were compared to commercial operations, which have more product at a cheaper price. That false comparison short-shrifted TKO's value and reduced their competitiveness on paper. After applying for one of these federal contracts in 2017, the Springses received a letter saying they weren't selected, but the next year they found out their application was never processed. Through resolve and persistence, and new leadership at the local NRCS office. They eventually obtained contracts for conservation promotion and since have completed 27 projects that further the farm's regeneration, such as feeding pads for cattle and hoop house underground irrigation. Progress to reverse years of discrimination against black farmers is stalled at the federal level, too, the Biden administration's America Rescue, pardon me, American Rescue Plan included $4 billion in debt relief to, quote, socially disadvantaged farmers, defined explicitly as non-white. But after the program's debut in May of 2021, a federal judge in Florida quickly blocked the funds when it appeared that a white farmer, one of over a dozen who'd gone after the debt relief in court, could successfully claim racial discrimination. No payments from the relief package have yet been made as farmers are forced to play another wait-and-see game with their livelihood and loans while the courts give credence to the latest iteration of a right-wing legal strategy that challenges civil rights protections as reverse discrimination. In the meantime, without federal backing, the co-op has been even more important. Kevin and Teresa move thoughtfully but urgently when it comes to learning from elders and storing away their knowledge. It's not a matter of if the know-how will be lost, but when. Elder farmers, passing on their knowledge, promotes holistic practices and offsets destructive outcomes of corporate agriculture, which often strips land of its resources, said Kevin, with one local elder, Kevin has stepped in to inherit the farming knowledge his children and grandchildren aren't is, pardon me, interested in receiving. I guess that's why he's pouring into me, because I'm there, 
to listen and ask questions, said Kevin. When he's gone, that's gone. Today, the work on TKO farming revolves around stewarding and growing the farm, looking for opportunities to blend criminal justice reform into their food justice work, and educating young students to bridge the knowledge gap between the elders who taught them so much and future generations. As part of what they dub their education exchange, TKO brings college students down for day or week-long immersion into black land stewardship. They also mentor youth groups at a local church, teaching the basics of gardening and planting. And they always look for opportunities to teach young folks the basics of food justice. We never call food insecurity food deserts, said Kevin. That is food, oh, pardon me, this is food apartheid. A desert is natural. A policy that deprives us of our right to food is purposeful. After their first exchange in 2018 with students from Williams College in Massachusetts, Teresa took a break from the lessons to watch the students fish and couldn't help but sob. If we helped instill love of land and this sacred connection, that is everything. And this is why we came here, she said. For a year, I knew what I wanted but hadn't seen it yet. Preserving this knowledge felt even more urgent when the pandemic hit. Everything the Springses were learning about self-reliance and sustainability came into stark relief amid the need to self-isolate in early 2020 and the international supply chain and food disruptions that followed. When things collapsed with the pandemic, everybody went into their separate areas, but what we built within the community kept us working together and building together, said Teresa. Before COVID, we were thinking that being so isolated might be a problem if something happened, but it actually saved us. Look at the holes in the food system. We are at the cusp of major disruption, but we're self-reliant here. Mississippi is considered the most socially isolated state in the country, especially for aging folks. Between its extreme rurality and high rates of folks with disabilities living in poverty, the state sees plenty of poor health outcomes that can be linked to isolation, distance to hospitals, food insecurity, and loneliness, which is a risk factor for early death and rapid aging decline. Public health researchers have increasingly argued that where isolation is a physical absence of relationships, loneliness is a social dearth, and though related, the two aren't always inextricably linked. Loneliness is only weakly associated with objective isolation. It's more of a mismatch of what one has versus what one wants in quality of social relationships, said Louise Hockley, who researches loneliness at the University of Chicago. She says, loneliness is not chosen, but isolation can be. The Springses see this distinction every day. They chose to be isolated, to steward pastures and veggie plots, shedding a fast-paced life in South Florida, one of the most densely populated places in the country. And at first, they thought the loneliness would start to seep in with the isolation, but almost a natural byproduct. But they were wrong and quickly found the opposite was true. The isolation spawned deeper connection with each other, themselves, and eventually 
neighboring black farmers. Hockley points out that pain and reward, both physical and social, activate the same parts of the brain. But social science is pretty limited on how loneliness is studied, usually just lumping it in with physical isolation. She said, it's a collect it is collective as well as relational, and we need to measure it as such. We don't understand what older adults need because we're not asking what they need. This is especially true in the Deep South, where infrastructure for aging folks, such as in-home care to address growing medical needs and social interventions like food delivery, are more limited. But for the Springses and their elder neighbors, the collective is actually the cure. Despite great, pardon me, great swaths of isolation, their black farming community, though small, is strong and supportive. Intergenerational co-ops serve as a way for communities to retain vital knowledge for self-sustainability, while also offering a place for people to be in relationship with one another. The Springses and others say, although farming is isolating by design, something they've been thankful for during the COVID-19 pandemic, it's not a sentence of loneliness. It's actually the exact opposite. The connection to the land and community support from black farmers and land stewards actually creates a buffer effect, protecting from loneliness in what is otherwise an increasingly isolating career and way of life. But most farmers don't have the support and community that the Springses have. Along with the number of black farmers, Co-ops have declined over the last 50 years. Those working to protect them say they're more important than ever, and just over the past 25 years, more than 200 small co-ops have popped up. It almost wasn't our choice to move here, said Teresa. This was our best option to build something new together, when we saw the potential for self-reliance and knowledge sharing with farming elders, the light bulb went off. We realized we could learn something and build something, and we can teach something. The tail wagged the dog. For the Springses, their farm not only became their personal redemption, it began to shape into a political act, a revolution. In the midst of land loss and food insecurity, Kevin says the only option is to take care of themselves and their community, one crop row at a time. He added that the act of working his own land on his own terms is invaluable and something he never understood the power of until they took on the farm. My labor belongs to me, he said. Small farmers don't make money, but we do create value. This is the most revolutionary thing I could do, Start and end the day with soil. Teresa feels calm after a day of digging and planting in the garden, like she had released something. Two, only eating from the homestead and knowing exactly what's going into their bodies has helped improve their overall health, she says. The soil between her toes was also healing, said Teresa. When I came here... I had to disconnect in every way possible to stop the stress and anxiety, pardon me, anxiety voltage from coming to me. I had to let it all go. 
Being away from the noise and air pollution, Teresa began to find solace and safety amid the big open space surrounded by trees that bent in the wind to the same song the birds and bees sung to her and Kevin. The quiet days with fresh air on beautiful land was healing, but the land alone couldn't have sustained them. If we didn't have the community aspect of this, I don't know if I would have stayed. The loneliness could have made me separate from the land and Kevin, said Teresa. Taking care of this land needs so much. The land gets all your attention. But the shared community piece saved our farm and probably our marriage. End of article. A note at the bottom. For more information on TKO Farming's work and current project to build a Southern Agrarian Training Center, part of their ongoing work to bridge the knowledge loss gap between black elder farmers and younger generations, visit their GoFundMe or donate directly via their Venmo business page at Ancestral. B. I'm going to have to spell that. A N C E. S-T-R-A-L-B-E-K-I-N. Now I see it. Ancestral B-Kin. That's from their Venmo business page. Once again, if you're looking for them, that's T-K-O, Farming. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for listening. And I'll be closing this, it looks like, about a minute early. Thank you for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the William O'Rourke Foundation, providing financial support to organizations devoted to promoting vision services. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.